this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching here at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is from the Apocalypse of John, also known as the Revelation, beginning in chapter 1, verse 9, through verse 17. It's the basis of the sermon here at First Free Methodist Church on July 2nd, 2023. It's the first message in our new series called The Worth of Worship, as we explore worship in the Christian tradition and how worship grounds us as God's people. As we turn to this text in the Apocalypse, we look first at this passage from verses 9 to 17, which sets the stage and gives a description for us of how this entire book begins to unfold. And so let's hear the passage of Scripture from Revelation chapter 1. I'll be beginning at verse 9 in the 2020 revision of the New American Standard Bible. I, John, your brother and fellow participant in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And after turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. And wrapped around the chest was a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been heated to a glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now, of course, the story goes on, and Jesus uh, in this vision appears and, of course, addresses John as a part of this vision that doesn't just unfold in chapters 1 and 2, but it's really the vision that John sees throughout the entire book of Revelation all the way to chapter 22. But these early verses in the Apocalypse of John help set the stage for us to help us understand what's going on for John as he's on the island of Patmos. So if we take a careful look at verses 9 and 10, we understand clearly the setting that John describes here. John uh, describes this narrative in the first person. He says that I am your fellow participant in tribulation, and that he is their brother in verse 9. This is an unusual combination of words in the Greek language, and this is written. It's uh, a word for fellow participant that you would best is pronounce, the best way to pronounce it would be sun koinonia. 
It's the word koinonia with the prefix soon on it, which means to be a, a, fellow, per, a fellow participant in community, a co-member of the community. And he describes how he's a brother and fellow participant. He says there's three ways in which he is engaged as a fellow of this community of Christians. He says, I'm your fellow in tribulation. I'm engaged in the work of the kingdom and perseverance in Jesus. Those three things, tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. In tribulation, at least, this is John making reference to how he ended up on Patmos to begin with. It's quite likely that John uh, wrote, either wrote this letter or perhaps was under uh, the reign of Emperor Domitian, the Roman emperor. And so the tribulation that was unleashed was part of a tribulation and a persecution upon the church by the emperor at the very, very end of the first century, probably somewhere in the early 90s, if you will. And this tribulation by Domitian was parallel to the one unleashed by Emperor Nero about 20 years or so earlier. So the tribulation is this persecution of the Christian community that's gone on, and it is acutely felt in Asia Minor. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then he says he's their fellow participant in the kingdom, which notice how he differentiates here. This tribulation, perhaps of Emperor Domitian, is of a, not of a kingdom. It's a kingdom of God, actually, the kingdom of Jesus. So in other words, the tribulation may belong to Domitian, but the kingdom doesn't belong to Domitian. And then he finally says in the third way, I am engaged with you as a fellow participant in perseverance, this, this capacity to respond to tribulation. And this is the core message of Revelation. At the very center of its exhortation is this one of perseverance. Now, John is on an island in the middle of the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And it's an island about 40 miles off the coast of what is today Turkey, uh, which uh, the closest city that would, that would reference would be Ephesus itself. Now, Ephesus was a famous city in the ancient world. It housed one of the great wonders of the ancient world in the Temple of Artemis. And Patmos was an island about 40 or so miles off the coast, and oftentimes people make a mistake in reading this text. They refer to Patmos as some kind of penal colony or prison. It's almost like it's a modern day Alcatraz. Uh, that's not correct. Patmos was not a penal colony. It was part of a region of uh, the Roman world uh, called Miletus in the middle of the Aegean Sea. Uh, in, on Patmos, there was, there's archeological evidence of a school being there, a gym being there. They had a substantial temple to the, the uh, god Apollo and Artemis, both of whom are Greek gods. Um, and so there is a sense in which there's already a community on Patmos. So why in the world is he there? Why is John on Patmos to begin with? He says quite clearly in verse number nine that the reason he's there is because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so this tribulation he's experienced has one, been one that has occurred because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. For the, the very act of being and proclaiming himself as a Christian, he finds himself in this situation on Patmos. He's likely, most scholars think, under some form of self-exile. Oftentimes when there was a persecution or there was um, even uh, places where there might be some criminal occurrence in a person's life where they might be accused of a crime and even found guilty of it, 
depending on where they ranked in Roman society, they were given different options for their punishment. And so it's quite likely that John's punishment could have been execution, or because he might have been a Roman citizen by this point, or he might be more higher ranking, he could have been offered a self-exile in exchange for his death sentence. Now, when this happened to Roman citizens, oftentimes they were stripped of their citizenship and they were also stripped of their property that they may have owned. So John's way to Patmos could have been a result as being sentenced to go there, but it could also quite likely be his own self-exile. And when this book was written, Revelation, either by John or his followers shortly after his death, it was likely back in Ephesus after Emperor Domitian had died. Oftentimes when Roman emperors would die, those who had been sent into exile or those who had been imprisoned as political prisoners were freed. And so it's quite likely that after Domitian died, that John would have found his way back to Ephesus again. This opens up a key passageway for us in this entire part of the text, that perseverance is a key virtue for Christians. Now, throughout this letter, the cause of perseverance is lifted up. The entire body of Revelation is a letter. It's a communication to those seven churches in Asia Minor. The letter exists to lift up the value of perseverance as a virtue. John's exile is caused by his clear obedience to the Christian faith. That's how he finds himself on this island of Patmos. So his own example and experience are to be imitated by us. Persistence and perseverance are the key for us as followers of Jesus. It's less a matter of what we face as believers, because we're going to face moments of trial, suffering, tribulation, moments of blessing, joy, and happiness. It doesn't really matter what we face as believers, but what does matter is how we face it. How do we react, and maybe more importantly, how do we respond to the moments in our life that are filled with challenge? Perseverance is a key virtue for Christians. We moved to verses 10 and 11 in this passage of Scripture, and John tells us some things that had been happening in this space. He says, there are two things about this vision that he had that unfolds the entire book of Revelation. He says first in verse 10 that he was in the spirit. Now, it's important that we note that this is not some kind of trance that he's in. And the reason we know that sometimes when we're looking at the, the actual language the New Testament is written in is, is that when there's a particular word you could use for something like trance, but that's not the word that's used. There's some sense in which we can kind of rule that meaning out. And in this case, the word for trance, and there's a Greek word for that, that's not used here. It's more like a, a vision or a picture. Uh, he could be in a, a point of meditation even, kind of in an image-rich environment where the Lord appears to him in this vision. He then says the second thing, that it happens on the Lord's Day. And this is likely Sunday, Resurrection Day, is a day when Christian communities, even by the end of the first century, had been become had come to gather themselves together as God's people, differentiated against Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath. It says in the text that he heard a voice like a trumpet behind him. The trumpet is a familiar note of announcement in the Bible. If we start reading uh, Daniel, we start reading Ezekiel, we start reading some of the other prophets in the Jewish scripture, we find time and again the announcement of God's presence like a, a trumpet. So this isn't a surprising image. 
a, a piece of trivia that folks need to know about the book of Revelation that's really key to it is that nearly 75% of this particular book, the Apocalypse of John or the Revelation, is either quotations or allusions to what Christians call the Old Testament. Almost 75%. And so we need to remember that this is a, a text written in a time and a place, a language, and a context. And when we forget those things, uh, we can often get into trouble uh, when we try to read or interpret this book. The instructions given to him in verse 11 are to write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. He's supposed to write what he sees. This is key. Remember, he's in a, a vision or a dream as he's experiencing this. So Almost imagine the way we have a vision or a dream ourselves, kind of surreal imagery, uh, oftentimes <laughs> defying the laws of physics or whatever it might be. We need to remember uh, that he's in this state. And so the text will illustrate how the vivid images in what's called apocalyptic literature, which the book of Revelation is, are to be interpreted. So for us, the Old Testament or Jewish scripture is a decoder, if you will, of much of the book of Revelation, along with some of the contemporary examples that are used from first century uh, Roman world and Jewish world. So if we put together the body of Jewish scripture, put together Jewish practice, if we put together with that contemporary examples from Roman culture of the first century, it will go a long way to helping us understand what this text is trying to tell us. He's supposed to write what he sees. He's not supposed to write what's told to him, although he will do that. But he's supposed to take this vision he's having and somehow record it into words. So John's work in the apocalypse is a bit of interpretation. He's seeing a vision, and then he's trying to describe it somehow with words. And I think it's important to sit with that for a moment because there's a recognition here that... Um, the totality of the vision is hard to convey in words. And so the words are important, and we need to remember that they're describing a vision John is trying his best to describe. Now, the assignment is clear. He's supposed, everything he sees, he's supposed to write that as a letter to seven different churches in Asia Minor. Now, he lists off seven cities uh, here, uh, two of which Ephesus and Smyrna are the largest of these cities. These are significant cities, and there's Christian communities that exist in all seven of these cities. I've been blessed to be able to journey to each one of these seven and have seen where these uh, communities were located in the settings that they were in, and certainly even as we learned in the ancient world, Ephesus and Smyrna, which Ephesus, the closest city that corresponds to it today in Turkey, is Kusidasi. And Smyrna is modern-day Izmir in Turkey. There are five other cities of various sizes. Some of them are coastal, some of them are inland, but this is where the Christian community had been gathered. So imagine John on the island of Patmos, and then imagine the Christian communities and the cities on, on the continent of Turkey in Asia that are closest to Patmos. So there's a lot of proximity going on here. Patmos and Ephesus are are connected to each other. It's an island not 40 miles off the coast. It all opens up a key passageway for us here, and that's being in the Spirit allows us to hear God's call more clearly. John is in the Spirit, he says. 
So John's description of being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day are unique to the New Testament. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where someone is described as being, quote, in the Spirit. And it's also the first mention of anything called the Lord's Day. So there's value to the practice he keeps of being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So this means being in a place of meditation, a place of openness, a place of of quieting ourselves, quieting the busyness of our minds, and allowing ourselves to be caught up into the reality of God's Spirit. The text now turns to the visual element. Everything up to this point has been something John has heard. And as he turns in verse 12, then he begins to see something. He says in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And after turning, I saw. Then he describes what he saw when he turned. So the vision now begins to unfold. Now there's all of these elements of this particular initial vision that John has that really uh, begins to describe itself at the end of verse 12. And after turning, I saw, for example, seven golden lampstands. So let's walk through each one of these images and talk a little bit about what they mean. Uh, the seven lampstands here, the image, of course, is of a, of a menorah, and it's designed to call the reference the seven lampstands that are in the Jewish temple and the tabernacle before that, which that temple had long been destroyed by the Romans for over 20 years by the time this particular vision happened for John. Uh, in many ways, it de- since it conjures these images of the temple or tabler- tabernacle we know from Jewish scripture, the Old Testament, it helps us understand that what he's seeing is something of a heavenly realm or like a heavenly temple, if you will. And this becomes much more explicit in Revelation chapter 4. It says in the midst of these lampstands, standing right in the middle of all these lampstands, is one like a son of man. Uh, this is, of course, a title of Jesus we know from the Gospels, but what's interesting is that John's Gospel never uses the term Son of Man to address Jesus by identity. So it's interesting why this is chosen, and so what most scholars think is that this is, again, calling to mind more Jewish scripture. The book of Daniel talks about how Daniel's three friends were thrown into the fiery furnace, and there in the furnace, a fourth one appeared like a Son of Man. So this apocalyptic imagery between Daniel and Revelation, which is common throughout this book, is kind of pulled to the forefront. The robe that goes to his feet is likely some kind of angelic garment. Uh, Some have even suggested it's like a priestly garment, indicating the kind of role Jesus has as a messenger or even a priest. The golden sash across his his chest is consistent with the image we see in the vision in Daniel chapter 10 uh, about position of power or royalty. The head and hair of white, these are common depictions in scripture that we know from the Old Testament of describing what's called the ancient of days. Uh, it's some, uh, a reference to the eternal nature of God. And so Jesus is now described as, as appearing in that same way as the ancient of days. The eyes like a flame of fire are indicative that, that the, the Jesus he sees is all-seeing and all-knowing, and that this vision of Jesus is of a purifying power. Feet like burnished bronze, and notice how the text described them. It's like they're still hot. Feet like burnished bronze when it has been heated to a glow in a furnace. And so it's, uh, uh, this substance of bronze is, a, uh, is forged of copper and tin together, and it's much stronger metal 
uh, when it's forged this way. And so there's an idea that that Jesus is able to move with strength and that his footsteps are filled with strength and power. It's an image of this eternal power of who Jesus is, the voice like many waters. No, we know what it's like to be near a waterfall with massive amounts of water moving. It, it's hard to hear anything else. Again, it being indicative of the power of God, the seven stars. Now, the seven stars are important because when we look at images of the emperors in the first century world and on into the second century, they're holding seven stars in their hand. And the reason they're holding seven stars is it represents the seven hills of Rome. They're images of power that, that we begin to understand uh, that Jesus is holding in his hands. And as we keep reading the chapter, if we were to keep going through the rest of chapter one, we would learn that the lampstands represent the seven churches and that the seven stars in his hand represent the angels to those churches or the angels of those churches. Then there's the sword piercing and separating. This is the word of Jesus, if you will. And then finally, the face like a sun, radiant, that there's no shade or hiding. There's no escaping the presence of Jesus. So it's no wonder that John, it says at the beginning of verse 17, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That opens up a final key passageway for us. And our final key passageway is a quote from the great New Testament scholar, Bruce Metzger, who said this about the book of Revelation. Metzger says, Revelation does not mean what it says. It says what it means. That, that quote may be somewhat paradoxical, but I think it's so important that we center on what Metzger is trying to tell us is that these images that we read in Revelation, sometimes very powerful, sometimes at times even disturbing or terrifying, these images are designed to com convey a meaning to us. And so it's vastly more important that we understand what the image means than simply what it says. If we were to depict this Jesus that's described in Revelation 1, the image would look almost cartoonish. So we need to move past reading this text in a literal sort of way and begin to understand that the images are designed to convey a meaning to us. People who read the book of Revelation often fall into two similar traps. One is literalism that they try to read the book as history rather than image. And they also read the book, secondly, with narcissism, that the message that's contained here must somehow be only for us today. We have to remember that the power of the images here are intended to convey a reality beyond words. John is describing what he sees so no wonder he falls down like a dead man. These images are powerful. And simply because they have meaning behind them doesn't diminish their significance or power. Revelation is a work that teaches us an important truth that we remember from the beginning of this book to the end. It teaches us about perseverance in the face of evil. It's grounded in the mighty and awesome nature of God's presence. And as we go for these next several weeks through this series, we're going to be talking about that mighty and awesome presence of God. Roman emperors, emperors like Nero in the late 60s and 70s, or Domitian in the late 80s and early 90s, these people are imposters of God's greatness. And Revelation takes pains to make a mockery of their so-called authority 
because they point to the one true authority, and that's Jesus. It's for this reason that we remember that one of the important credos in the Roman world is that Caesar is Lord. But one of the most important and first creeds of the church in its dawning days wasn't that Caesar was Lord. It's that Jesus is Lord. And that is what Revelation is trying to teach us. That's it for this week. I thank you all for listening. If you have comments or reflections, please visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on news in the upper right-hand corner and click on the podcast menu below that and then click on this week's episode and leave a comment. I also invite you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time.